Hi, I'm John, Father John Deere, and welcome to Pache Bene's Monthly Peace Podcast. I'm recording this in late May 2020 during the coronavirus pandemic, so I hope you and yours are safe and sound and taking care and social distancing and self-isolating and being peaceful and prayerful and kind to yourself and everyone. I'm self-isolating in my little hermitage on the central coast of California, and I thought Today, I'd reflect with you on Thomas Merton's teachings on peace and nonviolence, based on my recent book called Thomas Merton Peacemaker, which you can get if you want from Amazon or Orbis Books or Pache Bene. As you remember, Thomas Merton was born in France, I think in 1915, educated at Cambridge and Columbia, and then dramatically converted to Catholicism and entered the Trappist Monastery in Kentucky in 1941. And from then on, he spent seven hours a day in prayer. And in 1948, published his famous autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, which sold an unheard of one million copies very quickly. He went on to write over a hundred other books on the spiritual life, and by 1960, expanded his vision to write about war, racism, nuclear weapons, and the environment before any other priest had ever done so possibly even in the world. On December 10th, 1968, while traveling through Asia, he died in Bangkok at the age of only 53. His life and genius at writing about the spiritual life encourage us, especially in this strange time, to be people of prayer and silence and solitude, to contemplate the mystery of God and the wisdom of Jesus, and to really pursue deepening the spiritual life as a life of peace and uh, contemplation and wisdom, to become our true selves as sons and daughters of God. Merton insists that prayer, meditation, and adoration of God mean entering into the presence of the God of peace, dwelling in the peace of the risen Jesus, serving life and therefore resisting the forces of death. So our daily spiritual practice should lead us deeper into peace, love, and nonviolence, into becoming people of universal peace, love, and nonviolence. You'd think that'd be obvious, but it hasn't been for nearly 2,000 years, and Merton has done, gave us a great gift. So what I'd like to do is mull over a few favorite Merton teachings, and you can ponder them with me as you drive in your car or you're doing the dishes or having a cup of coffee. Again, these thoughts are from my book, and from my nearly daily reading of Merton for over four decades, which is a little over the top. So here's one of my favorite Merton sentences. Quote, The God of peace is never glorified by human violence. So Merton says that violence and war not only don't work, not only do they just destroy us, but they are not the will of God. They do not serve God. They have nothing to do with God or the spiritual life. In other words, if you support violence or war in any forms, you are not on the spiritual journey, no matter how devout you may think you are. If you support any type of violence and war, you've missed the point. God is nonviolent and is trying to lead us into universal love and peace. This is the key to the spiritual life according to this great teacher. And uh, God wants us to respond to this call and go on a journey deeper into universal love and peace and nonviolence. So once you discover that God is peaceful and nonviolent, you can never support war or violence again. And so Merton says this great line, the God of peace is never glorified by human violence. I invite us to remember that I think that's a fundamental bottom line truth. Well, I've thought about that sentence for decades and even named a book after it about 30 years ago called The God of Peace Toward a Theology of Nonviolence. But one day about 15 years ago, I realized that Merton forgot to add the flip side. So here's my addendum to Thomas Merton. <laughs> The God of peace is always glorified by human nonviolence. Do you think that's true? The God of peace is always glorified by human nonviolence. I propose that the more we delve into interior nonviolence, 
protect, practice meticulous interpersonal nonviolence toward everyone and be nonviolent toward all creatures and all creation and join the global grassroots movement of nonviolence. The more we live gospel nonviolence, the more we walk forward in the footsteps of the nonviolent Jesus, the more we will glorify the God of peace. That's why we work for justice and discernment. Because first we have encountered the God of peace in our contemplative prayer, and we're sent forth to do God's will to help disarm the world, and thus to serve the God of peace, and therefore to glorify the God of peace, and then finally to welcome God's reign of peace here on earth. Here's another favorite Merton quote of mine. The chief difference between violence and nonviolence is that violence depends entirely on its own calculations. Nonviolence depends entirely on God and God's word. Wow, I think that is so profound. If you're trying to be a person of nonviolence, you have to let go and depend entirely on God and God's word of peace and nonviolence. If you're a person of violence, you don't need God. Why? Because you depend on your weapons. You got your guns and your money and your nukes. Actually, you don't believe in God at all. You have no faith. You're just going through the motions, and I think that's where many of us are at, if not most of us. Our support of the culture of violence shows that we do not believe in the God of peace, because we're not we're depending entirely on God and God's word of peace. Merton invites us to renew our spiritual lives, become people of daily quiet prayer, to plumb the contemplative depths of nonviolence, even to what he called an ontology of nonviolence, by living according to the word of God. As I said in my recent podcast, starting with, therefore, the Sermon on the Mount, these core teachings, blessed are the peacemakers, love your enemies, be as compassionate as God. In other words, to read the Gospels daily, that's like a requirement of a life of nonviolence. So Merton To put it another way, he never put it this way. This is my take on Merton. He's inviting us to practice contemplative nonviolence, mystical nonviolence, not contemplative violence. What's the point of being contemplatives or saying your prayers every day or pursuing the spiritual life and going to church and going to mass and deluding ourselves that we are faithful Christians and good Catholics We just end up supporting the bombing of children in Iraq or Afghanistan or silently sitting back during these evil days of racism and sexism and corporate greed and nuclear weapons and Wall Street and American fascism. We don't want to be going to mass or church and end up supporting the military and America, the lie and myth of America, or our nuclear weapons and injustices and fascist leaders. That means we are not worshiping the God of peace. Merton says that faith and prayer and contemplation and the spiritual life without nonviolence don't make sense. I think it's a very profound teaching, and it's the great need right now among Christians in the United States, maybe the whole world. As you encounter the God of peace, you get disarmed and become more nonviolent. So we want to be practicing contemplative nonviolence and go on a journey deeper toward universal nonviolence, which means we have to break free from our narrow-mindedness, what, our patriotism, our systemic injustice, uh, the false lie of American security and guns and nukes and racism, and enter the uncertain ground of peaceful nonviolence, uh, where you have to rely totally on the God of peace. That's all you got. And you're going to say to me, well, John, that's easy for you to say because it was easy for Merton. You guys are priests. Merton's a monk. Well, I think it was hard for Merton. And Merton is such a gift because he could write. He was a genius about expressing his search and teaching us about the spiritual life, influencing millions, perhaps a billion people. But early on, remember, he was a Catholic fundamentalist like everybody else. Unlike, though, the rest of us, he kept searching for God and for truth and Jesus, and that eventually led him in his fearless search and openness to broaden his vision to embrace the whole human race. That's where we are called to go, to continue our journey deeper into God and to gospel nonviolence and let go of our narrow-minded American 
blindness and idolatry and fundamentalism and enter into the vision of the kingdom of God. Every one of us can do that. We're all called to continue to grow and deeper into God on the fullness of life, which is holistic nonviolence. That's one of the great lessons I get from Merton. So here's a famous moment in Merton's life, which you may have heard of a million times before. It was in November, I think, 1958. He writes about it in Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, where Merton was standing in the middle of the busy noon lunchtime crowd on the street corner in Louisville at 4th and Walnut, where right now actually there's a historical marker because it was one of the three great mystical experiences of his life. Merton Lee suddenly realizes he loves all these people. In fact, all people. And, you know, as a Catholic fundamentalist, you're not supposed to do that. Back then, you know, the triumphant church, Catholics are the only way to get into heaven. All the rest of you are going to hell. I mean, there's very serious theology. Merton's saying, no, I love everyone. That's what... Suddenly, his heart widens to embrace the whole human race. Dear friends, I think this is the sign of sincere prayer, the sign that we're on the right journey, the sign that we're deepening into God, that as you practice your quiet, daily contemplative prayer and investigate and try to live gospel nonviolence in your day-to-day, especially now in this lockdown time, our hearts can begin to grow and widen into universal nonviolent love like Merton so that we begin to embrace and see every human being as a sister or brother. This is the path of gospel nonviolence. This is where prayer should be leading us into universal nonviolent love so that as we open into greater love and compassion for everyone, we begin to take action like Jesus did to stop the violence and injustice which is hurting and killing so many sisters and brothers around the world. So here's the quote from Conjectures. It was as if I was suddenly, let me start again there. If it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, and no more greed. Wow. That's beautiful. So he has a spiritual revelation, and immediately he realizes the social, economic, and political implications. Now that's a wisdom figure. As you study his life, you see that this experience from that day forward led him to start addressing all the big, horrible, difficult issues facing the whole human race, starting with racism, war, greed, and nuclear weapons. After this, he concluded like Gandhi, that life and nonviolence are based in the truth of our common unity, our common oneness with all people, all creatures, and all creation. This is how I've been defining nonviolence for four decades, that it comes from the living in the truth of our, that we're all one. Here's Merton's actual sentence. I think this is from Blessed Are the Meek, his famous essay on nonviolence. What is important in nonviolence is the contemplative truth that is not seen. The radical truth of reality is is that we are all one. The radical truth of reality is that we are all one. Wow. This is the truth that we are trying to live every day from now on. We are all one with one another and all creation and the Creator. And from now on, no matter what the government says, we are on a journey into universal love universal compassion, universal peace, and universal nonviolence. How did Merton break through like that? Well, throughout the 1950s, people don't realize this, he was secretly studying Gandhi. Now, what priest in the United States was studying Gandhi in the 1950s? I bet there wasn't one. And by the early 60s, Merton collected one of the first great anthologies of Gandhi's writings, which he called Gandhi on Nonviolence. And he wrote this really long introduction, like 70 pages, which is one of the most insightful examinations of Gandhi ever written. I have probably read it at least 25 times, and I still don't understand it. Because it's postdoctoral Gandhi, and it's so deep and interesting. And it's there that Merton says, <laughs> I don't know how he thinks this up, Gandhi's political revolution, he's talking about getting the British to leave India nonviolently, 
sprang from an inner spiritual revolution of the heart. Here's his quote. Gandhi's, not, Gandhi's nonviolence was not simply a political tactic which was supremely useful and efficacious in liberating his people. On the contrary, his spirit of nonviolence sprang from an inner realization of spiritual unity in himself. The whole Gandhian concept of nonviolent action in Satyagraha is incomprehensible if it is thought to be a means of achieving unity rather than as the fruit of an inner unity already achieved. Wow, that, that has taken, I remember 10 years trying to ponder. In other words, as an activist, we all, I want to go and force unity on them. And Merton says, you know, what Gandhi did was, his, he, he came from, the, his work was the fruit of an inner unity already achieved within himself. That's a powerful spiritual teaching, which Gandhi would agree. He, Gandhi would say, that's what I try to do. Um, this is the nature of the spiritual life and all its political implications. So um, while Gandhi was maybe the greatest activist of modern centuries, his public work sprang from the disciplined inner disarmament of his heart and the inner cultivation of peace, freedom, and nonviolence. And Merton's teaching us that if you want to advance the cause of peace and disarmament, you've got to work at advancing peace and disarmament taking ever deeper root within yourself. And we must be diligently doing our inner work uh, if we want to be used by the Holy Spirit and our nonviolence become contagious, because that's the teaching of Gandhi and Merton, that the more you cultivate interior nonviolence and you open yourself to interior disarmament, then the more nonviolence and disarmament can spread and your presence can disarm others, as Gandhi shows, even nations and empires. Well, we can't be talking about Merton without his teachings on silence and solitude, which is something that he, he talked about and wrote about every day for 27 years, how they help us become our true nonviolent selves and guide us to a deeper awareness of our oneness with God and humanity and creation. Here's a, a random quote from one of his journals. This is January 12, 1950, so it's long ago when he was younger. It is in deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers and sisters. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. It is pure affection and filled with reverence for the solitude of others. Solitude and silence teach me to love my brothers and sisters for what they are, not for what they say. So solitude is not merely a negative relationship. It is not merely the absence of people or of presence with people. True solitude is a participation in the solitariness of God who is all things. That's kind of classic Merton. But notice words like gentleness and it leads me to deeper, purer love. And that makes sense. And I'm mixing in his teachings of nonviolence there. Silence and solitude open a way to gentleness, love, nonviolence, and God, Merton's saying. Um, he's trying to invite us to slow down, let go of our inner violence and the world's violence, let go of what? Resentments, hatred, fears, anxieties, worries, to make peace with ourselves, dwell in the peace of Christ, and open our hearts with compassion to all others. More, he says, silence and solitude can take us deeper into the silence of God, which he would say poetically is actually the language of God. With that in mind, this whole lockdown experience could become a blessing, a real holy opportunity if we approach it like Merton in his search for the God of peace. Of course, most of us live very, very different lives than Thomas Merton, the monk. We're busy with work and house and school and kids and jobs. But Merton's silence and solitude remind us that no matter what, I always insist, because I met many busy people who do this, we can always take time, but especially during this lockdown, for silence and solitude in our own journey to peace and the God of peace. He reminds us to take quiet time every day to open ourselves to peace and to God. And if we do that, especially through silence and solitude and recenter ourselves in the God of peace, we'll be more nonviolent 
and more loving and more peaceful and more gentle and by the way more prepared to face the violent insane world with new wisdom and grace here's another turning point in merton's life recorded in his journal on august 21st 1962 which people, you know, in the whole Merton field, I've hardly ever heard anyone talk about, but my friends and I have talked about it a lot over the decades. One day, he suddenly realizes, hey, I've always liked nonviolence, but I've never practiced it. He's been studying Gandhi and Buddhism every day for 10 years. He loves these teachings on nonviolence, and then one day says to himself, what am I doing? I need to start practicing this in myself. I think this is very powerful. So here's a brief quote, but there's a much, much longer passage, which I quote and write about at length in my book that you might want to explore. Here's his quote. Today I realize with urgency the absolute seriousness of my need to study and practice nonviolence. Hitherto I have liked nonviolence as an idea, but I have not practiced it. This is very important. Again, this is just the beginning of a long reflection in his journal. Now, mind you, Merton's been in the monastery for 21 years already. He's the world-famous expert on this spiritual life, and one day he wakes up and goes, oh, I haven't been practicing nonviolence. I think we're all like that. Beginning with people who like peace and nonviolence. Certainly my experience, it, it happens pretty regularly. I wake up and go, I haven't even begun. Remember St. Francis said that just before he died. I've, I've hardly even begun the journey. We have to move from just liking nonviolence to really start practicing it and engaging with it inside our hearts, our emotions, the difficult people who push our buttons, and the world. It's like saying, <laughs> you know, I really like Jesus. I'm a big fan of Jesus, big, big fan. Until one day you realize, oh, I'm supposed to start following this guy. Jesus doesn't want us to be fans. He wants us to be disciples, and there's a difference. I don't think you can really begin to understand God or the spiritual life until you make that leap of faith into the daily practice of nonviolence, as Merton did from then on. Why? Because then you begin to you see all your inner junk, all the violence, you know, you're, you've just had a great experience at Mass and you want to run somebody over in the church parking lot on the way home or on the way from the nice peace meeting. Um, this, is, this is your inner work. Uh, and you want to go deep into nonviolence and thought, word, and deed. So Merton really, really tried to then, from then on, study nonviolence, define it, talk about it, think about it, reflect on the people within the monastery who really pushed his buttons, and there were a lot of them. You know, community is so hard. And uh, he invites us to think about how we can become more nonviolent too. And therefore, by the way, create a, a church of nonviolence and move toward a world of nonviolence. So then in the 60s, as he's really maturing now in his understanding of the contemplative life and it's all its political implications and prophetic dimension, he really begins to name systemic, structured, institutionalized violence as the ultimate evil. And that's what we need to do, too. You've got to name it. This is systemic, structured evil. And he called the church to announce its complicity with these forces. And he looked hard at it and said, um, here's the quote. This is from his book, Faith and Violence. The real problem is death and even genocide as big business. And that's what we're facing today, the big business of death. Here's, the quote goes on. The big business of death is all the more innocent and effective because it involves a long chain of individuals, each of whom can feel absolved from responsibility, each of whom can perhaps solve his conscience by contributing with a more meticulous efficiency to his part in the massive operation. In other words, I see this all the time in our campaign at Los Alamos with the birthplace of the bomb, it's where employees have said to me exactly what the Nazis said, I'm only doing my job. It's just a job. I just put in the one screw. I'm not responsible. 
You see, then it becomes this big business, and we're all complicit in the business of destroying the planet. He wrote many brutal essays in the 1960s about this. In terms of violence, racism, and war, and nuclear weapons, they were shocking. They were way ahead of this time. I don't have time to get into it. I'm just going to mention one, which still makes my hair stand on end. It's just so incredible. Merton read Hannah Arendt's a classic academic study of Adolf Eichmann. Her book is called The Banality of Evil. So he was on trial, as you know, and then executed. Eichmann ran the extermination programs in the concentration camps. And she wrote a very cold book, just like examining Eichmann. And Merton wrote an essay called A Devout Meditation on Eichmann. And he was shocked by Hannah Arendt's brilliant analysis of Eichmann's cold, calculated, businessman approach to genocide. And he writes that the big business of death after World War II, and now in America and everywhere, has become normalized. It's normal now. No one was saying this before Merton in the early 60s. Merton was shocked, as Hannah Arendt wrote, that just before the trial, as you can imagine, they brought in a psychiatrist to spend serious time with Eichmann. And the verdict was, quote, Eichmann is perfectly sane, as you can imagine. And so then Merton wrote a long series of statements, and I'm going to quote one at length, just to give you a flavor of the way Thomas Merton, the saintly spiritual contemplative, looked at the world. Here goes. Now it begins to dawn on us that it is precisely the sane ones who are the most dangerous. It is the sane ones, the well-adapted ones, who can, with, who can without qualms and without nausea aim the missiles and press the buttons that will initiate the great festival of destruction that they, the sane ones, have prepared. No one suspects the sane. And the sane ones will have perfectly good reasons logical, well-adjusted reasons for firing the first shot. They will be obeying sane orders that have come sanely down the chain of command, and because of their sanity, they will have no qualms at all. And when the missiles take off, then it will be no mistake. Here's the punchline. The whole concept of sanity in a society where spiritual values have lost their meaning is itself meaningless. Wow. He continues, Eichmann was saying, the generals and fighters on both sides, on all sides in World War II, the ones who carried out the total destruction of entire cities, these were the sane people, the sane ones. Those who invented and developed atomic bombs, nuclear weapons, missiles, who have planned the strategy of the next war, who have evaluated the various possibilities of using bacterial and chemical agents. These are not the crazy people. These are the sane people, the ones who coolly estimate how many millions of victims can be considered expendable on nuclear war. I presume they do all right on the Rorschach inkblot texts. On the other hand, Merton concludes, you will probably find that the pacifists and the ban the bomb people are, as we read in, as we read in time, crazy. So I hear Merton saying that any support of violence in war is a sign that, brace yourselves, this is my take, we are infected with the global pandemic of violence and war. That, in other words, in his language, we are insane. The only sanity is through total nonviolence. Jesus came to put us in our right minds, to disarm us and make us nonviolent and sane. So we can live as peace. That's the way God created us to be. We have to help each other become sane people of nonviolence and to cure each other from the pandemic, the virus of violence, which is uh, spread by our governments and militaries. So Merton published his first major stand, okay, the first major piece on peace in the early 1960s in the Catholic work, Catholic worker, and I still consider it one of the definitive Christian writings of the 20th century. I might be the only one who say that, but that's what I think. Because there he said, buckle your seatbelts, 
The number one task of the Christian is to work for the total abolition of war. Wow. No one but Dorothy Day had ever said that before in the church. We know that now. I'm going to read the quote, but I want to ask you to reflect on it with me. Is he right? If he is, what are we going to do about it? If Merton is right, then we all have to get work for the total abolition of war and for the rest of our lives. And that means the abolition, of course, of all the, all the means of war and the metaphors of war, from gun violence and racism and corporate greed to executions and poverty to nuclear weapons and environmental destruction, every form of violence. So here's Merton's words, the beginning of his famous essay in The Catholic Worker. Quote, the duty of the Christian in this time of crisis is to strive with all our power and intelligence, with our faith and hope in Christ, and all our love for God and humanity, to do the one task which God has imposed upon us in the world today, and that task is to work for the total abolition of war. Wow. There can be no question unless, that unless war is abolished, the world will remain constantly in a state of madness and desperation in which, because of the immense destructive power of modern weapons, the danger of catastrophe will be imminent and probable at every moment, everywhere from now on. The church must lead the way on the road to nonviolent settlement of difficulties and toward the gradual abolition of war as the way of settling international or civil disputes. Christians must become active in every possible way, mobilizing all their resources for the fight against war. Peace is to be preached, and nonviolence has to be explained and taught and practiced. We may never succeed in this campaign, but whether we succeed or not, the duty is evident. Very powerful. I think this statement which shocked many millions of people when it was published, is the natural consequence of a profoundly committed contemplative life like Thomas Merton lived. After consciously seeking the God of peace morning, noon, and night for decades and trying to live a life of total nonviolence, what happens to you? You start calling for the abolition of war and all violence. And I would add, here I'm trying to improve Merton, <laughs> You start calling for the creation of a new culture of nonviolence. That's what we're doing with Pope Francis now. Note that Merton calls people to get involved, to take action, to do what you can in the grassroots movements of nonviolence. You may say, well, how can Merton do that when he lived in permanent self-isolation? Literally lived in a cabin. I've, I've stayed in it for a month. And there's no phone, no TV, no computer, nothing. Well, Jim Douglas told me long ago, our friend, that whenever he used to visit Merton in his hermitage, he would be shocked because Merton knew more about the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement than practically anyone else in the peace movement, and Jim was one of the leaders. Merton was listening and studying and totally focused and attentive, and so he could write and make great contributions to the movement. So that's what I'm saying all of us can do something. If Thomas Merton, a hermit in the woods, could speak out publicly for peace and justice, so can we. So here's another one of my favorite quotes. This is Merton in the 60s. Wow. It is my intention to make my entire life a rejection of, a protest against the crimes and injustices of war and political tyranny which threaten to destroy the whole human race and the whole world. By my monastic life and vows, I am saying no to all the concentration camps, the bombardments, the staged political trials, the murders, the racial injustices, the violence, and nuclear weapons. If I say no to all these forces, I also say yes to all that is good in the world and in humanity. That is just so beautiful. And we could say the same thing today. And so I wonder, can we say the same about ourselves? Might we dare do the same with our lives? How can we make our entire lives a rejection of and a protest against the crimes and injustices of war, corporate greed, nuclear weapons, racism, environmental destruction, systemic violence, even this new American fascism that we're reading about every day, and also, yes, to 
peace and nonviolence. This is what our greatest spiritual writer invites us to do. It may not be what you think of as the spiritual life, and that's why we need to listen to this guy's teachings. I invite us during these terrible days to commit ourselves from now on as peacemakers, as people of gospel nonviolence, to make our entire lives a rejection of and a protest against the crimes and injustices of war, racism, violence, nuclear weapons, poverty, and environmental destruction so that we can be prophets of peace and nonviolence. That would be my, na my next main point. Murfitt, Merton, without trying to, became a prophet of peace and nonviolence to the world. I think of a prophet as someone who simply spends her life listening to God. This is what a contemplative does. That's what we're doing in our prayer, listening to God. And then you go forward and you tell the world what you heard from God, what God wants to tell us, since you've been the one who's listening. And since we have a world of total war and violence, and since God is a piece of total peace and nonviolence, God is a God of peace and total nonviolence. What we are hearing is God's word of peace and nonviolence. In other words, God wants us to speak that word of peace and nonviolence to the world. That's what Merton did, and I think we're all called to do the same, to become a prophetic people of peace and nonviolence. The, the shocking line that really got me when I first read it in the early 80s, I've talked a lot about ever since, is just a little phrase from one of Merton's letters to Jean Leclerc in early 1968. Leclerc was one of the great global leaders of monasticism, and he was a friend of Merton, and he invited Merton to come to Bangkok and speak at the conference on the future of monasticism. In fact, that's what he did, as you know, on December 10th, the day he died. He had just given the talk. But in the correspondence, Merton writes a letter back to Jean Leclerc and says, yes, I'm going to try to come, and I'm going to say that the purpose of monasticism is, quote, not survival, but prophecy. What? That is so shocking, and I can say this as someone who's been in religious life in the priesthood for, I don't know, almost 40 years now. The whole point is survival. we got to make the church survive, the parish survive. And, and only a great figure like Merton could say, that's actually the last thing. The point is not survival, but prophecy, going forward into the world and telling the world what God wants us to, to say. We don't need to be concerned about institutional survival. That's God's problem. In fact... Our survival is already guaranteed, right? We're people of resurrection. Um, we're called to listen and tend to the word of God and then speak that word of God to the culture of war. And that means being a prophetic people who speak publicly. Here's another phrase that I really love and uh, talked a lot about. And do you remember in 1964, Merton hosted the famous Fellowship of Reconciliation Peacemakers Retreat uh, with the Berrigans, A.J. Musty, Jim Forrest, John Howard Yoder, and many other great people. And in the notes um, that he sent out preparing his friends for the retreat, he has this phrase, the goal is to help us, you know, go forth, <laughs> I don't know how he thinks this up, quote, to awaken an eschatological conscience. What? That's the purpose of the retreat he's having with the Berrigans. These are great people. Martin Luther King was going to be there, but the Nobel Peace Prize was just announced, so he couldn't go. So here's my translating, a translation of Merton's phrase. We have to help one another practice eschatological nonviolence. Eschatology means living in the end times, the end of the world, but it's also the fullness of the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. So to practice eschatological nonviolence is to leave, live completely centered in the kingdom of God, like Jesus and Gandhi and Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton. So you're totally living in what we perceive as heaven here on earth, which means in a whole new world of nonviolence, which means you're working for a new world without war or poverty or racism or nuclear weapons or environmental destruction, for a new culture of, the com of peace and nonviolence, for the coming of the reign of God on earth as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Remember Gandhi said in my podcast on Gandhi, I talked about this, he wants to, 
gosh, he once said the kingdom of God is nonviolence. So I hear Merton inviting us to have a long-haul vision of the coming of the kingdom of God, so that from now on we try to live in the kingdom of God, and everything we do and say comes from that. And so our contemplative prayer practice should be leading us to live our day-to-day ordinary lives in eschatological nonviolence, not as citizens of the United States, but as citizens of the kingdom of God, as St. Paul said, so that we're universal people who practice universal love, universal peace, universal nonviolence. Now we're getting somewhere. This is very deep and very helpful. Merton had a lifetime of disciplined contemplation, prayer, meditation, living in the woods. So he saw the things the rest of us just don't see. And this is a way to understand Jesus. There's a million ways to try, to try to understand Jesus. But Jesus, among other things, was a great visionary who announced that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he taught his disciples to be visionaries to announce that the kingdom of God is at hand, to see beyond the way things are into the coming of the kingdom of God here and now. So Merton, I hear him saying, we can do this too. We can become visionaries of nonviolence. And gosh, isn't that what we're going through right now? A time of terrible blindness, moral blindness, spiritual blindness, the blindness that leads us over the brink into fascism and global destruction. Our mission is to uphold the vision of nonviolence, like Merton, to point the way forward, the way out of our madness, to lift up the light, to lead us away from the brink into, into a new culture of peace and nonviolence. One of my, I, my favorite essay of Merton's is called A Day of a Stranger. It was written around 1966, and it's full of poetry, but it's like my ordinary day, daily life as a hermit. And he has this one gorgeous poetic line, which I spent years pondering, which hints at his eschatological vision. It's one sentence. Here it goes. Up here is seen the New Testament. That is, the wind comes through the trees and you breathe it. Wow, it's just like Bob Dylan. It's so beautiful. These great people. Well, it's so amazing that in this great man's life, a week before he died, he had the greatest mystical experience of his life. I still can't get over what God is trying to tell us about that. He's in Sri Lanka on his way to Bangkok. He goes to see the ancient carved statues of Buddha in the park at Palanarua. And so he's with, of course, the Bishop of Sri Lanka. It was called Ceylon then. You know, Thomas Merton is here. And they drive in a little beat-up car out in the middle of Ceylon to the park. And Merton says, I'm going to see the statues of Buddha. And the bishop is horrified. That's paganism. Because he's an, bless me for I have sinned, I'm just going to, he's an idiot. You should have stayed with Thomas. So the bishop sat in the car, which was very helpful. Merton takes off his shoes. He walks on pine needles, and there are these five-story hand-carved statues of Buddha. One more beautiful than the other. You can look them up on, on YouTube. It took him a week to journal about it. And so he wrote about the mystical experience a few days before he died. And it was his enlightenment where he became a Christian Buddha, in my opinion. Please go back and read it. And I write a whole chapter about it at the end of my book. You can, I only have a few thoughts here to add, but it's this one sentence that I want to highlight. Everything is emptiness and everything is compassion. I think about this all the time, and I, you might say I'm say, think, saying that lightly, but actually, as I'm walking along the ocean here in Big Sur, that's what I say to myself. It's like my mantra, because it was Merton's. I think it's a deeply Christian and Buddhist statement. The call, as St. Paul puts it, to share in the kenosis of Jesus, his self-emptying, even under death on a cross. The commandment in the Sermon on the Mount to practice the infinite compassion of God. Let go of everything, Merton says. Enter the emptiness of peace. Step into the present moment of peace. Don't be afraid to enter the kenosis of Jesus on the cross and the new life of resurrection and peace. And in doing so, 
open up into universal compassion, universal love, universal nonviolence, universal peace for all people, all creatures, all creation, that your heart might be as wide as the world. Let go and love everyone. So he has this profound mystical experience. The culmination of life, his life, his incredible life, and he's dead a week later, and in his journal, he's, it leads to this one sentence. In other words, Merton's saying, this is what I learned from the experience, and I'll say it again. Everything is emptiness, and everything is compassion. That's a good mantra for our lockdown. I'll end with just a few teachings of, on hope from Merton, because they're shocking. And maybe you've heard them before, and maybe they're not so shocking now. But over the years, as they've been published, you know, the Merton students, we, we're just all been amazed and shocked. So the day he moves into the hermitage in his journal, I think it's a valve conversation. He writes, now I can get on with the work of hope. What? Is that what you thought when you began your lockdown? If you want to look at it that way? Great, now I can get on the real spiritual task at hand. I get to have two to six months at home alone or just with my family, which is the work of hope. That's the mind of Merton, the attitude of Merton. Isn't that powerful? The task at hand is what he calls the work of hope. It's ordinary language, but he didn't really explain it. We have, we have to sit with that. That's why he's such a great teacher. Well, I think that means everything he's taught us, the serious business of daily prayer, nonviolent living, compassion and mindfulness, peaceableness, and prophetic truth-telling. Then Jim Forrest, my friend, who's founding the Catholic Peace Fellowship, went on to become one of the leaders of Fellowship of Reconciliation, as I did in the 90s. He's all depressed about the Vietnam War, and he writes Merton a cranky letter. And Merton has this famous response. Jim was complaining. I am doing everything I can to help the peace movement and stop the Vietnam War. This is like 66, 67. You can think of this poor, poor guy working so hard. And it's all futile and so depressing and so hopeless. And you'd think Merton would write back like, oh, you poor guy. And no. This is like a letter of St. Paul. In fact, the day I met Daniel Berrigan in the early 80s, he, he read this to a handful of us and said it was an apostolic letter. It's very long. I'm just going to give you the few key sentences. Do not depend on the hope of results. Well, there's the teaching. Focus not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of your work for peace. Your real hope is in God. It's so obvious now. But when you're a hardcore activist and you're all caught up in it, this isn't working. I'm not ending the war. Nothing's happening. So he writes to the great spiritual teacher of the century, and he writes back, what's your problem, kid? You're placing your hope in the results like you're going to do it. Your hope should be God. In fact, the outcome is in God's hands, not yours, Jim, not ours. So go and work for peace and just, justice, no matter how hopeless it appears, and place all your hope in God. So you do the good because it's good, you do what's right because it's right, and you leave the outcome in God's hand. You be as nonviolent as you can, you work for a new world of nonviolence, but you place all your hope and trust and faith in the living, loving God of peace as you follow the nonviolent Jesus. That's the path. This is a very helpful, profound teaching that's at the core of every major religion. But his real powerful teachings on hope are in his correspondence with the great Polish poet, Czesław Miłosz, who you remember wrote, won the Nobel Prize in Literature in the late 80s. Merton's writing to him in the 50s and the early 60s. Nobody's writing to Czesław Miłosz, an obscure poet from Poland under the Iron Curtain, except for Thomas Merton. He's got correspondence with the greatest people on the planet. And Miłosz writes to Merton, you know, he's the famous Thomas Merton, to complain. Ah, oh, there's no hope. You know, I'm in despair. He's right. He's in communist-controlled Poland under the Soviet Union. It's going to be for, last forever. And he says this to Merton. And Merton, I, I don't have time to give the long quotes. I'm just going to paraphrase some of them. <laughs> I remember that, you know, Daniel Berrigan, my friend, typed 
this out the day he discovered it in 1994 and sent it to me when I was in jail for a plowshares action. These teachings from Merton. Merton says, hope usually takes the form of despair. Uh, that is a very profound teaching. If you're going to follow the nonviolent Jesus in a world of total violence, you're not going to get the Nobel Peace Prize. You're going to end up on the cross like Jesus. Total despair, total failure, and total victory of the resurrection, if you have eyes to see. So he's trying to encourage Miłosz to continue to the struggle and not to cling to the feeling of despair. That's normal, because you are hopeful because you are a person of resurrection. You know life is stronger than death. Peace and nonviolence are stronger than war and violence. Love is stronger than fear and hate. So he has this great quote, Life is on our side. Victory is certain. The resurrection is the only light. That was the conclusion of his letter. If you want to be people of hope, you have to be people who trust in resurrection, which means you have to be people of peace and nonviolence which I think was the whole point of my last podcast. Life is on our side, so we go forward to choose life, live life to the full, and non-cooperate with the culture of death as people of peace and resurrection nonviolence. Well, I could go on and on, as you see, about Merton and his teachings. If you were interested in what I said, I, you might like to get my book, Thomas Merton, Peacemaker. I hope you can also get my latest book. It's called Praise Be Peace, the Psalms of Peace and Nonviolence in a Time of War and Climate Change, but I could also add Global Pandemic. And friends, you could help uh, me and Pache Benny by telling your friends about these podcasts and promoting them on social media. That'd be a big help. My hope and prayer is that each one of us can become better peacemakers like Thomas Merton, people of contemplative, visionary, even eschatological nonviolence, who every day from now on glorify the God of peace. Thank you, God bless you, and peace be with you. <music>